Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm James. And I'm Jody. I am finally drinking a different beer besides Cratchit's Old Winter Ale. <laughs> I'm, I'm still on the Holiday Porter. Well, you're on beer two, and I'm just now on beer two. Ah, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I just got a little bullet of Centerpoint Black, uh, which Ooh. I've mentioned many other times. Just a nice stout porter, and that's all we have to say. All right. So, Jody, what are yes. we discussing this time? This is the final episode for Kiss's Music from the Elder album. Dun, dun, dun. Yay! Oh, whatever. Fanfare! I guess just to jump right back into it. <laughs> yeah! Uh, the last episode, we talked uh, talked a little bit about what happened when it was released. <laughs> it, it bombed. <laughs> but it received critical acclaim. Yeah, it did. Um, I, I didn't put a whole lot of notes, but I know that Rolling Stone gave Kiss their first positive record review in the magazine. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Wait, I got to find it. Well, while you're looking for that, um, Billboard magazine also gave them a very positive review on it. Although I don't know how Billboard had reviewed their earlier albums, so I don't know, you know, <laughs> if it was the first one Billboard did that was positive or what. <laughs> oh, got it, got it. Okay, you ready? Yeah. It's a quote from Gene, but it goes into exactly that. Okay. Uh, Gene said, you should never go for respect, and this harkens back on something Jody said in the first of these three episodes. Yeah. On the day that critics and your mom like the same music that you do, it's over. <laughs> and this goes with a Rolling Stone. They give it a very good review by J.D. Considine in 1982, and Rolling Stone had bashed pretty much every album up until this point which is the weird thing because this new one like jody mentioned last episode barely even says who they are yeah but now because they're avant-garde duchess oh, damn it i just took a drink <laughs> old jd had to jump in and be like oh well finally this is good and i have a small penis and live in my mom's basement uh, yeah it's a paraphrase by the way yes um, so before you get the lawyers out, JD, kiss <laughs> my ass. <laughs> More an entertainment group anyway, so fuck off. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Bashed him constantly until now, and all of a sudden, ooh. <laughs> I might be a little more rambunctious about it because I'm doing the Zip 3, and, well, you all get to hear that in a few months. Yeah. <laughs> well, two weeks, maybe. I don't know when the fuck these are coming out. <laughs> True. The band's manager, uh, Bill Coin, considered it as much a Bob Ezrin album as a Kiss album. He said something that uh, many people have said that I, I agree with. I, I think you, you'll agree with this when I say it. And I've actually heard this used not just for this album. I've heard it used for other albums by other bands. It's a good album, but it's not a good Kiss album. Yep. Gene and Paula both said pretty much exactly that. Ace even said that. Surprisingly, as much as, <laughs> as much as he's talked about how much he hated it over the years. But Bob Ezrin, who produced it, uh, was very happy with the finished album. Uh, he was excited to turn it into the record label. He quickly realized the band, by not joining him in doing so, were hiding and distancing themselves from the project. <laughs> so I've got two quotes from Bob. Uh -huh. uh, you know what? I've got three. Okay. And this will show where he's gone from. The first quote is, there's not enough material and the story is not fleshed out. It's an interesting failure, I think, mm -hmm. which, which I'm okay with. 
you know, I, I, I will, let me interrupt real quick. I will agree with that because they, there was actually talk of doing a double album for this. And there was talk of making a trilogy story. That and that. Yeah. Yeah. It worked. And we mentioned other things they could have done that might've helped kiss fans. Mm -hmm. The second quote from Bob, most fans couldn't grasp it and they felt left behind and isolated. Nice excuse, Bob. They couldn't grasp it. No, you did not make a kiss album. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in that same, you know, I'm in that same lane on that. I, I think it's a really good album. I just don't think it's a good kiss album. Nope. You want to know Bob Ezrin said more recently and I don't have the dates, but I do know it was after those other two. Um, sure. What? It's an abomination. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's it. Well, I mean, there's more, but that's the big quote out of that yeah. interview and about this particular album. And yeah. you know what? <laughs> you went from new fans couldn't grasp it to it's an abomination. I'm going to disagree with him. I don't think it's an abomination. <laughs> I just don't think it's a good kiss album, <laughs> but I think it's a good album. Should I give my quotes from the other band members? I'll tell you what, let's, let's get to this. Cause I, I, I got some more, I got some more stuff from Ezra. Perfect. So let's do that first. He went on to say, when you're making something like this, your head is in it and you're in the moment. You might have casual conversations about futures and other things, but you have no time to dwell on it. There's so much to do. So we talked about wanting to get a film and a comic book and all sorts of stuff made. But when it was clear that people were hating it, I think everybody's aspirations changed. Then I think it became more of a question about the band trying to figure out how to undo the damage or how to make up for it as quickly as possible. So once again, they moved on from me, which was kind of how he felt after Destroyer. He kind of expected they would do the next album with him, and they didn't. They went with Eddie Kramer to do the Rock and Roll Over album, and Ezrin was disappointed. He wanted to work with them again, which is why I think he jumped at the chance when whoever it was, whether it was Gene and Paul or probably Bill Coin came up to him and said, Hey, you know, let's, let's do another record with you. Probably. Uh, so you had quotes from the band. I do. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. I'll do Paul's first. Wait. Okay. Paul, Gene or Ace. Yeah, I do Paul. Okay. Paul first. Got a few. First is it's a move of just absolutely folly. <laughs> yep. Biggest misstep of our careers. And I'm not ashamed of it by any means, but that and Kiss Meets the Phantom <laughs> 1978 stand out as two examples of us getting on the wrong exit. Yep. And then that's kind of it. It just could have just done a Kiss album or, or had a bit more. Mm -hmm. All right. Ready for Gene or Ace? Uh, do Gene's. All right. Gene actually admits his fault. He says it was entirely my fault. Ezrin read it, meaning his little sketch of the book, comic book movie thing. Mm -hmm. And Ezrin said, this will be your Tommy. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we've mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, you did the first episode. Yep. Yeah. Gene also said, when darkness gets too strong, a hero was born to restore the balance. And that's not so much a dig against. That's his thoughts on it. Uh -huh. And I think that matches up with Anakin from Star Wars and the prequels. Yes. But they made it too simplistic in both cases. And in my personal opinion, that's where they both failed. And it is. It is very simplistic. That's where I would love to find, and I don't know that they're out there. I don't even know that the tapes exist, but I would love to hear those spoken word sections from the, that were taken out Ooh, because I they've never that. been put back in. But we'll, we'll, yeah, whenever you're ready for that. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. You want your last Gene quote from me? Yeah, yeah. He called it pompous, which I find amusing from Gene. <laughs> <laughs> you know when Gene's saying is pompous? 
<laughs> it is, and it is kind of pompous. It is because uh, what was it? Ezra described their music as cock and balls. <laughs> in one quote that I did not put in here. <laughs> you know, I have a quote that I have written down for later use, but I've got to use it now. Okay. According to Gene, Paul is the soul of kiss and I'm the cock. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Although Eric Singer then said, Gene loves the sound of his own voice. We all know that, but nothing happens in kiss unless Paul said Hanley said. Yep. <laughs> you, you got a quote from Ace there? <laughs> I got two quotes from Ace. Okay. First, I thought for a second, because I like Creatures of the Night, it's heavy, it's powerful. It's everything I said we should be doing when we recorded The Elder. I may not have quit the band, but you can't rewrite history unless we go into a time warp or a black hole, which, which is perfect because he's almost saying like it's great and it sucks and I quit, but I didn't quit because Ace is kind of messed up. Yes. Ace, Ace quit. <laughs> yeah. But here's the one I like. Uh-huh. Bands want to hear a heavy hard rock album. No fault of their own, meaning Gene and Paul, because Gene grew up in Israel, Paul grew up in Queens, but he wasn't a crazy guy like me who hung out on the corner and got into fights and did crazy stuff, which is true. I mean, yeah. and that's where these are the guys that want hard rock. They yes. don't want this hoity-toity Duchess crap. So my, my quotes from Ace uh, was that he brought up the fact that Bob Ezrin uses his heavy drug use at the time as an excuse for even going in the direction they did. Uh, but then Ace points out that he was also heavily using drugs and still said it was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm stoned out to the bejesus bell and the still stupid. <laughs> yeah, but he he did in his in his autobiography, which I still haven't read all of. I've only read his chapter on this time frame. <laughs> um, he he said it's not a bad album. It's just a bad Kiss album. He said, the songs themselves aren't that bad, but some of them simply aren't appropriate for a Kiss album. And I'm not, I, I, I agree with him. On my end, they just weren't quite musically capable of getting what they wanted to represent. No. Although I do think it does show how good musicians they could be because they do step the playing up a bit, but it's just not, you know. Some people have pointed out that this would have been better if Rush had recorded it which is kind of funny because they were really good friends with the guys in Rush. <laughs> well, I get that. Like Pink yeah. Floyd, Rush. These yeah. are musically really talented, practiced musicians, not just yeah. rock and roll. Yeah. But, the, but those are also bands that, well, Pink Floyd wouldn't have done it because it's more of a fantasy thing. They would have come up with something a little more real world for the subject matter. But, but this, this is something that would have been right up Rush's alley. Yeah. Yeah. It would have worked better with the orchestral music. Yeah. Kiss just didn't quite have that orchestral feel. I I think it would have worked really good for for a Dio album, actually, because it's the kind of thing that Ronnie James Dio loved to write. Yeah, yeah, or Kiss's Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, which I think was kind of what another thing they kind of thought it could be. The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, which they thought it could be. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) I caught that. Thank you you very much. So I've got this description. Uh, C.K. Lent in in his book Kiss and Sell. Um, of course, uh, he was part of the Glickman Marks uh, accounting firm, which had stepped in as Kiss's business managers. He described the listening party for everyone at Acoin Management and Glickman Marks. He says, for 40 minutes, the album played without interruption. It was a strange, almost ethereal experience. No one could believe it was Kiss. No one could compare it with anything they'd heard before. 
no one could describe it. It was both mystical and eerie, speaking parts mixed with dark, brooding ballads. Some of the songs sounded to me like they were in a dirge tempo. I'm going to kind of stop there and say I don't agree with that necessarily, because a dirge would have even been slower. Yeah, a dirge is funereal. That's yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I will disagree with him on that. I do too. But he goes on to say uh, the songs had odd titles like "Just a Boy," "Mr. Blackwell," and "The Oath." There was even an opening orchestral fanfare and background harmonies by the St. Robert's Choir. And there was a lot of talking between some of the songs that sounded like something from Sir Walter Scott. <laughs> no, <laughs> Walter Scott kicks ass. <laughs> yeah. The overall effect was somber and lugubrious. You felt depressed or at least melancholy after listening to it. There were few catchy beats or distinctive refrains, and there weren't a lot of melodies that left you humming. The symphonic bridges and string arrangements paid fulsome homage to the operatic concept. Music from the Elder wasn't so much grand as grandiose. The effect was otherworldly, but also overblown. Kind of pompous. <laughs> it wasn't like anything Kiss had done before. <laughs> you know that several of those points are yeah. spot on. <laughs> oh, Yeah. And uh, I, I got another quote here from Bob Graw, uh, who I mentioned in the last episode, was a, he's a Kiss super fan. Even though he had a negative reaction to the album overall originally, uh, although he came to, to, to like the album, he said the band sounded good on it. It was produced by Bob Ezrin, and he always brought that great sound. It was a great sounding album, but it was just not Kiss. I don't know why they went for that. And I remember reading quotes back then, and Ace hated it. Ace wanted nothing to do with it. It was pretty much why he ended up quitting the band. And Eric was like, I remember hearing quotes that he said, why did we do this? Why didn't we go back to the way you sounded? He was disappointed that it was his first album and it was a rock opera. Very disappointing. Uh, Charlie Benante, uh, drummer for Anthrax. Yes. Um, he was another one who saw them at the uh, Palladium, the one show they did on the Unmasked tour in the U.S. when they introduced Eric Carr. So he and Eddie Trunk were both there. Anyway, he he likened it to them doing a version of Pink Floyd's The Wall. And he, he said that there are parts of the album that he liked. Eddie Trunk said that in later years, after he got to know Eric Carr, that Eric expressed his disappointment with the album. Um, Eddie Trunk himself uh, said he didn't love the album, but he also doesn't hate the album. Well, thank you, Eddie. Yeah, but it gets it, it's it had a really good reaction from uh, drummer Mike Portnoy, uh, formerly from Dream Theater. Uh, he said he's a big fan of the album and he considers it underrated and underappreciated. And I got this big quote here from Ty Tabor, guitarist for the band Kings X. He said, "When the Elder came out, I didn't know anyone else that was listening to that record, and it was for me one of my favorite things they had done in a very long time." I freaked on that record. I loved it. What I liked about it was it just had this foreboding and serious feel to it. And a whole lot of it, I had no idea what they were singing about or what this was from. Like, is there some movie I don't know about or some story I don't know about? It just intrigued me as so not like anything that had ever written before lyrically and musically, really. It had a medieval kind of freaky vibe to it. And they're singing about subject matter other than girls. For me, it was just like, wow, they've done it again. Yeah. So, so, yeah, even at the time, it, it did have its fans. And I did see, I think it was Ezrin or somebody was, uh, I didn't put it in here, but th somebody was talking about, um, you know, in, in some instances you had KISS fans who were into the, the comic books and fantasy stuff and that 
it was perfect for them because it was Kiss and it was also this other stuff. <laughs> and I think that's what I've always liked about it. I, that's, as, I know I've kind of hacked it a bit, yeah. but I also mentioned that I liked it. Yeah. And that's why I, mean, I just don't think it's as good as it could have been, but right. I still thought it had a great concept and was good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I am firmly in that, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a good album, but it's not a good Kiss album. There, it does have problems. But outside of being, you know, not necessarily a good Kiss album, I, I do think that the story is a little vague, but I, I do enjoy it and I have always enjoyed it. And I think part of that is, in spite of it not being a good Kiss album, it covers subject matter that I still find appealing. And that's why I like it. And, and I think if you've never heard the album, listen to it and give it a chance. And, and just, you know, if you're into that kind of stuff, and if you're listening to our podcast, then you probably are into some of that stuff because we've talked quite a bit about Tolkien and, and stuff like that, comic books. It will probably appeal to you. Definitely. I just, I think that's it. Yeah. They would have sketched it out more. If it hadn't been based off of just a sketch. Yeah. Would have been really good. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, outside of earning a gold certification in Australia, uh, it, that it did win an award. I did not. Uh, Eric Carr's sister, Loretta Caravello, she describes it as the Black Smurf Award. <laughs> the zombie <laughs> Smurf? Huh? That's the zombie Smurf. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I did look that up. See, I've I, I tried to look up what this award was, and I, I was not successful. I couldn't find anything on I this. don't know what the award is. I just know what the Black Smurf is. Yeah, that's what I found out what the Black Smurf was when I looked this up. Yeah, they're kind of a, a zombie Smurf. Um, but apparently it was called the Shrieker of the Year was was the award they won it for um i i don't know what this is but i do know that what the award looked like the physical award that they were given was a statue of a smurf probably we'll we'll say we'll say six to six to ten inches high but it's on a little pedestal and it's it's maybe pewter colored or something so yeah i i, I think that's where she was calling it the black smurf award <laughs> It was because because it's not painted. It's just this metal, metallic collar, this dark metallic collar. Um, because I found a picture of it. And I did not find the picture when I was actually trying to find what the award was. There's a, a Facebook page I follow. The guy just randomly found a picture and posted it on the, on, on the Facebook page. And I'm scrolling through and I'm like, holy shit, that's the picture I've been looking for. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it is. It was a little statue of him. And apparently Eric kept it. Yeah. So... <laughs> I would have too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I've I've seen a picture of it, but you know we've kind of talked how attitudes have changed over the years on this. Uh, Julian Gill in in the 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 Kiss album focus book said that Kiss received many requests for the songs four songs from the album during the acoustic performances that they were during doing during the 1995 convention tour, which fans had been doing Kiss conventions for years, and Gene and Paul just said, hey, let's let's do an official convention tour. We'll we'll go around the you know, the U S and I know they hit Australia and I think they hit Europe a little bit. I did not go to it. I could have gone to the one in Indianapolis and didn't, but it was an official one because the then current band with Gene, Paul, Eric Singer, and Bruce Kulick did an acoustic set. They were there to do a question and answer session. And they actually took stuff out of storage, like the old costumes and had the, had like a museum display and they would get requests for songs from music from the elder while they were doing their acoustic set. And they didn't play any that I know of, but, and J James mentioned this what, at the beginning of this episode or last part of the last episode, they did perform a world without heroes 
on the MTV Unplugged show that came out of them doing that acoustic set during the convention tour. Yeah. And and I will say this, when that when when the Unplugged album came out, because I didn't uh I'm trying to remember when I saw the performance. I don't remember. I think I bought the I think I bought the VHS when it came out too. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I was very happy that a world without heroes was on that. I was glad that they had done that. And, and they have, they've been doing this kiss cruise every fall. They, they do a, a cruise ship thing and a bunch of fans and stuff on it. And I know they've performed the oath during that one year. So, yeah. um, and they do that on the, on the kiss cruise, they will pick some really obscure songs that they've never played live before and they will do them specifically. Kids of the Century from Halloween's Live from their yes. It's nice to hear that occasionally. Oh, did you did you see the the thing I, I put on? I think I put it on the Twin Terrors Facebook page. Oh yeah, I, I already knew. I just oh, okay. It. I didn't know if you yeah. knew about it or not. So uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah. New, new, uh, because they don't have a North American tour announced yet. Yeah, bastards. So, but yeah, new uh, new Halloween album with uh, All Pumpkins United. Hell yeah! Next year, bitches. <laughs> So uh, some of the fallout from this fiasco, (laughs) (laughs) it was the most expensive album they had made up to that point in their career. Because it was so expensive, Gene, Paul, and Ace did not get paid until everyone else was paid first. That included included, included, uh, Bob Ezrin, Bill LaCoyne, employees like Eric Carr, and uh, other session musicians. And Peter Chris was still a partner in the corporation because of their 1976 contract was a 10 year contract. Yeah. Uh, so Peter was still getting a fourth of whatever revenue the band got. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I don't have to even earn the money. I'm going to go waste on blow. Yes. Yeah. Although I think this was around the time Peter went into rehab and I'm actually going to get to that here just a little bit. I had a little correction on something from, another episode (laughs) so in response to the album flopping as bad as it did uh phonogram polygram's parent label so so they're on casablanca which is owned by polygram which is owned by phonogram phonogram asked the band specifically to record four new hard rock songs so that they could do a new compilation of some of the band's older material and put these four new songs on it and they titled that kiss killers and for the u.s our U.S. listeners who don't know what this is, it's a best of compilation. It's got four new songs on it. And it came out uh, early 1982. And it was released outside of the U.S. because they said, well, you've already got two live albums and the double platinum album, which was a best of. And those were only released like, you know, two of them came out like three or four years earlier. So they just thought it was duplicating more stuff that was already out there. So they did not release it in the U.S. Still never really been released in the U.S., but it's really easy to find as an import. And, you know, the the four new songs, Nowhere to Run, uh, Partners in Crime, Down on Your Knees, and I'm a Legend Tonight were the four songs that they put on there that were new. Um, they're not bad songs. They're not their best. I mean, you can you can tell it's in that transitional period from Unmasked to Creatures of the Night. They fit very well into that time frame. I've not heard that yet, so yeah. Yeah. Ace wound up leaving uh, later in 1982. Although Gene and Paul both said they tried to get him to stay, uh, they had various reasons, uh, which I won't get into 
<laughs> there was a very big one that oh, was business related. I'll, I'll avoid also then. We'll save it. <laughs> yeah, because that might just be an interesting episode on its own. Uh, Bill Acoin said he thought that Ace had pretty much made the decision while they were recording the album. And I think Ace pretty much confirmed that in his biography, autobiography. And Bill Acoin wound up being fired. Uh, which meant that uh, Glickman Marks, who had been their business managers, pretty much took over as just overall management. It would lead the band to focus more on returning to a hard rock sound on the next album, which they were had said they were going to do on this one. That would be Creatures of the Night, one of the heaviest albums they had ever recorded. And it became a showcase for drummer Eric Carr. It was dedicated to the memory of Casablanca Records founder Neil Bogart, who died in May of 1982. And if you've not heard Creatures of the Night, I don't just strongly suggest you listen to it. It is another one of those where I will say you should probably buy it and have it in your collection because it it is one of their best albums ever. It is a kick-ass album, and they really did focus on Eric Carr's drums. So, It's a good uh, album. It is. Good. Now, in the, uh, in the episode we did on their End of the Road tour that they're on right now, the final tour, I had said that uh, somebody from management had brought some papers for Peter Chris to sign. And I kind of thought that it was getting him to sign away his rights to the Catman design. I don't think that's what it is. Actually, as I was going back and researching this, um, I I did look it up in Peter's autobiography. And he said, uh, he refers to him as Chris, but it's C.K. Lent that I've mentioned several times that was part of the Glickman Marks uh, firm. And he was the one that brought the papers to Peter. So I think it's actually related to a lawsuit that Kiss had going, which we won't go, go into because we've already said we're not going into that one right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that lawsuit came up around this time. But interestingly, C.K. Lent never brings this up, that he went to Peter and had him sign anything. So I, I don't know. Peter said he, doesn't, he, he didn't know then what he was signing. He just signed it. So I, I don't know what it was, but I think it was probably more to do with a legal matter with a lawsuit they were involved in than it did with the makeup. So I, I wanted to kind of correct that. And you had something you wanted to correct on something we mentioned in the first episode on the elder. Yes. Although I, I've got some other things about the elder still. Okay. Well, I do too, but if you wanted to put, put that errata thing in there. We will because it was when we mentioned saucy Jack for spinal tap. Yeah. It's mentioned, I believe in the movie, but the actual song is from their 2009 Back from the Dead album, which they released for things we'll get into when we get to that episode. Yes. But when, when we're talking about it, that's what it, like the actual song. Yeah. Is. Yeah, the song was not in the movie, although they did, they did sing a little bit of the chorus, I think. Because just that's... Smidgen. Yeah, just, just like a couple of lines or something. Cause I, think I, it I would, believe the errata is more on my behalf of what I said and not you. Oh, okay. okay. That's why I had to admit my failure. <laughs> <laughs> more beer. Yeah. All right. You had more on the, uh, on the album. I have a couple of kiss things mm-hmm. on a personal anecdotal, but otherwise the only other thing I have is the spoken bits part. Oh, okay. Uh, because you've mentioned it a few times. Yes. And the reason I find this so exhilaratingly awesome uh-huh. is so uh, the spoken bits were, like Jody mentioned, supposed to be interwoven between songs, and it would have given more flesh and depth to the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would have made the album better, if not great. 
I see. I would still love to hear. I'm hoping Bob Ezrin has them in his vault somewhere and they, somebody convinces him to turn them over to the band so that somebody can do something with this. Cause I, if, if Ezrin's attitude now is that it's an abomination, I don't see him giving them over to anybody. <laughs> no, but this part actually is kind of neat. They, they be, did record it because you mentioned the spoken bits part at the very final end where they yes. did have some. Yes. They did record them. What I find great is that the boy, uh-huh. capitalized, was played by Chris Makepeace, which, who was Rudy in the 17, not 17, 1979 Meatballs movie with Bill Murray. Uh, yes, I recognize that name. <laughs> yep, and that's when I said last episode, Rudy. It wasn't Rudy from Sam Gamgee's Notre Dame Rudy. It's Rudy <laughs> Run, You Rascally Rabbit from Bill Murray's Meatballs. Meatballs. <laughs> nice. Yep. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, he's a... Uh, he, so, uh, Makepeace is born in 68, so he was around 16. Mm-hmm. He helped Kiss with this in 1980. Yeah. And he was a big fan of Pink Floyd, The Wall. So, he, when he saw this, he's like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. And he received a signed copy of the album and a note from Gene Simmons and thought that was great of Gene to do so, even though his part was pretty much cut out. Yeah. Um, rumors that he sang, and he says, I did not sing. My voice is horrible. Hell no. Back off. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. As a little tiny note, one of the other voices uh-huh. was Anthony Parr, who was in the Ewoks cartoon. Oh, nice. I've got two more things real quick, but one of them is, why did they not get anybody famous? And I'm wondering, was it cheaper or because Gene didn't want anybody more famous upstaging him? Probably a little bit of both. It could be two things. <laughs> yeah. And the other is totally personal. I just remember as a young kid going to my grandmother's and grandfather's and they had HBO where my house did not. Yeah. And I'm watching the show and I, all I remember is this chasing at the end where this guy in this motor, like kick-ass car is avoiding somebody in a helicopter. And I'm like, who the crap? And every time I think about it, I'd always forget, but I look it up. It's called the chase from 1981. Uh-huh. And Chris Makepeace was in it. He's the young man. But huh. it's Lee Majors, the bionic man. Oh, yeah. And Burgess as the good guy. And Burgess Meredith, Penguin from the Batman. <laughs> as the bad, the, well, he starts bad. He's the guy in the, the planes, but he ends up being okay. It's, it's fantastic. And this movie also stars Robert Christ, or Christ. I'm assuming it's Chris, but it's spelled like Christ. Uh-huh who is also the other person who voiced people in music from the elder. He must've done the voice of Morpheus then. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Because the one piece that survived was Morpheus talking to the elder. And I don't know who did the voice for the elder character, but it could have been Anthony Parr, but it was yeah, Robert Christ or Anthony Parr. Okay. Okay. But that's it. I just, I love the fact that, the little dude from Meatballs with Bill Murray. <laughs> was uh, the boy. Oh, that is awesome. I did not know that. Yes, thank you. Oh, that is awesome. See, you filled in some more pieces of the puzzle there. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, that's what, when, when, I, when I'm looking for stuff on the bootlegs, this is the, that's the stuff I'm looking for are those spoken word parts, and I don't know that they've turned up anywhere. I, they haven't. Uh, even Chris Makepeace has said that he, he did it, and, you know, everybody believes that everything happened because of stuffs. Uh-huh. But, Nobody has ever heard it ever since. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
I think maybe when they went in and they played it for the people at the record label and they're like, no, 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 no. Keep that last bit in and that's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of getting all that stuff cut out, unless you had more. I have two anecdotes about Kiss. Okay. Well, yeah, go ahead and do those and then I'll go on to this stuff. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, They have nothing to do with the elder. (laughs) Oh, well, give them anyway. Okay. Two things. And first is Jody, because this goes <laughs> Bruce Kulik, because he's mentioned Bruce and Bob. Yeah. And I remember in high school, maybe college, young college, going to Jody's house and he played a video. And Jody will remember the VHS, I'm sure, but it's a where they go and they actually interview Kiss and they go into their house and it shows <laughs> this young woman hiding her face, going, Oh, well, you can't see me with Bruce falling her out with one of Bruce's small bits. Yeah. And so it makes them look like they all live in this mansion where they're all getting laid by groupies constantly, including married women, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But after researching this episode, I'm like, no, that's bullshit. They all didn't live together. They fucking hated each other. And they had money <laughs> issues throughout their whole fucking career. Yep. <laughs> I love that video. <laughs> it's a good video. That's, what, that's where I start thinking, yeah, I got to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> I think, that was, I think that was really only that was, that was Bruce's only real scene in the whole thing. It was. <laughs> he, comes, he comes running by. And goes, is this the? Is this for the? the is, is this the video? Yeah. Edit her out. Edit her out, man. <laughs> they left her in because it's fake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they did put the black sensor bar over her eyes. So. You, <laughs> yeah. All right. And my other actually goes with we're talking about unmasked and the whole thing. So at this point in my life, the Hardy Boys. Mm-hmm. And certain things from Disney were still a thing with Sean Cassidy, who was a big pop star. And, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm like eight years old, seven years old, six years old, and it's Halloween time. And I say, I want to go with Sean Cassidy because I, <laughs> I love the Hardy Boys. <laughs> and, and my brothers, here's a great brother story. They tell me that, well, you could go with him, but you know he's dead, right? Because Peter Chris from Kiss shoved his drumsticks down his throat. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? Well, I did not go as uh, <laughs> John Cassidy, partially because my mom's like, well, how would you go as him? Do you just put on corduroys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I wasn't going to point that out. I figured somebody already had. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, like, you already had the blonde hair. We let it grow and you wear corduroys in a vest? <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's it. I even remember I'm sitting on top of a little dresser my legs kicking off because i'm a little kid and she's in there like what and this is the one time my mom have actually may have actually recruited my brothers to make up a story <laughs> oh I'm, I'm sure it was probably already on their minds <laughs> those bastards oh yeah mom we got this we already had one <laughs> uh, okay yeah <laughs> so as we've said some of this stuff was uh, cut out <laughs> The record label changed the order of the songs, except for the release in Japan. For some reason, they, they left the songs in the correct order, even though they did still take the spoken word parts out. I don't know why. Well, I, okay, so the reasoning behind taking moving the songs around is that they wanted to emphasize potential singles. And this is, again... American record company thinking we have to focus on the singles, you know, the, the album's not as important as, as the singles, whatever. Yeah, so yeah. 
so that's why the oath winds up being the opening track on the album because they think it's going to be one of the singles and that's why a world without heroes winds up opening up side two of the album because that definitely was going to be one of the singles strangely enough the oath was never released as a single but i was released in world without heroes but um in 1997 most of kiss's back catalog from the first album up through uh, crazy nights was remastered not remixed that's a completely different process but everything was remastered and re-released and they did take the opportunity to put the correct track order back to the way it had been before the record label screwed it up and that order runs as fanfare just a boy odyssey only you under the rose dark light a world without heroes the oath uh, mr blackwell escape from the island and again finishes with i and i did mention that when you know you put these in the correct order the story flows much much better and and it makes a hell of a lot more sense yes it does yeah and uh, you know like i said moving moving odyssey up to earlier in the album instead of later in the album to me it made it less of a love song and and like i said i don't know who it's supposed to be a love song to because no love interest is ever mentioned that i know of unless it was in one of the spoken parts or you know was just somewhere in the story and didn't make it into the actual album um, and it makes it more of that cosmic journey kind of thing and then rearranging the order so that you have dark light world without heroes the oath and mr blackwell you now kind of get this warning with dark light a, a vision of what could come in a world without heroes the oath is the boy accepting his fate and swearing to fight the evil and then mr blackwell is kind of the confrontation with the evil and it, it just by putting those songs in that order the way they were supposed to be it, like i said it flows much better and makes a lot more sense definitely so again song order on an album can be a really big thing because how the songs flow into each other and not even on an album like this as a concept album, just your standard album. I, I will kind of go on a little tangent here and point to Judas Priest's album, British Steel. The American record label did the same thing on that. They said, well, these songs were the, are supposed to be the singles. So we're going to move them up to the first song on side one and the first song on side two. And it throws the flow of the album off. And when I actually heard the album, the way, priest had intended for it to flow it sounded a hell of a lot better and it was already a good album <laughs> oh so. yeah yeah way better and i i don't remember the first order i remember liking it decently so yeah it, yeah well uh on the american version at least um breaking the law is the first song and on the british version it was like the third song on the album i think third or fourth song and it fits much better in that later spot and I actually became a bigger fan of Breaking the Law after I heard the album in that configuration. I actually started to like the song better because it made more sense for it to be in that spot on the album. And song order, like I said, that's why it plays a big deal sometimes because sometimes songs don't flow together right if you don't have them in the right order. And it can totally ruin the listening experience. But that's if you listen to an album as a whole instead of just, you know, oh, I only like one song. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and if you're the kind of person who only likes one song on an album you're not going to like this album 
<laughs> you have to listen to it as a whole. And I think, I think another way, I, I got to thinking about this today too, another way to think about this album instead of trying to think of it as a Kiss album is don't think of it as a Kiss album. Think of it as an album where the, where the then members of Kiss performed on it. Yeah, like a Marillion album where Kiss played it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh. Anyway, yeah, I, uh, music from the Elder. I personally, I like the album. I just don't think it's a good Kiss album. James seems to concur. Yep. yep. A lot it's of people seem to concur. A, <laughs> a horrible Kiss album, just not. Yeah. I and, and seriously. I, I have a hard time listening to Unmasked all the way through, but this album I can listen to all the way through. Yep. Yeah. I, I yeah. Not sure. I, yep. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. I have to think about it. I don't know. I can listen to this one all the way through. I've listened to Unmasked all the way through. I would have to listen back to back with that maybe in mind. I, well, I actually recently tried to listen to Unmasked all the way through and I got two thirds of the way through it before I had to stop. I just, I said, nope, can't take any more. <laughs> it's, it's too much of a pop album. <laughs> now, I was 12 when I first got a copy of that album. At that, you know, at 12 years old, it was like, yeah, man, this is great, you know. <laughs> of course, I was, that was also the time frame when I first got music from The Elder. And I was like, yeah, man, this is great, too. <laughs> well, and keep in mind, for those of us listening, for yeah. those of you listening. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll both listen to it anyway. But <laughs> well, we seem to have gotten more. What's the word I'm looking for? The stuff we listen to now is even more harsh than what we listened to when we were angry young men. <laughs> yeah, surprising. Usually you mellow out. Actually, I did my mellow stuff right during college. <laughs> and it's, like, it's like, you know what? Even some of that stuff I can't listen to anymore. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, that's our uh, part three episodes on, uh, part, or this that's, that's part three of our episode on music from the elder. <laughs> <laughs> no it wasn't <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this because <laughs> we have and hey and i've learned something i've learned a few things i did not know about this album thanks to james you're welcome and thank, thank you i did too but i assume that going in <laughs> <laughs> so on that note um, yeah yeah, on that note, we will say farewell for now. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back soon. Well, we're back every week with some stupid crap or not. Yeah. <laughs> All right, on that note, I'm Jody. And I'm James. Later. Bye. <laughs> the Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. Ooh, shit. Where'd it go? Damn it. Son of a bitch. Cocksucker, whore, fucker, bitch, fucker, slut. Oh, do, you, do you have the review? <laughs> I have something. Give ah, me a second. Okay. That's a, it's a very, very, I'm trying to find the thing, son. I'm only semi-paying attention to <laughs> <laughs> uh, And you know what? I've got one more that doesn't go with this album, but screw it so I can throw these notes away. Okay. Paul on Conquest Between He and Gene. You ready? Yeah. I think I've had more that would qualify as women. With him, you were also throwing in cattle. <laughs> I, but, I think I've heard that one before. But we both did very well. Gene likes to look and say, look at me and look what I've done, and that's okay. But who had more? 
I don't know. He certainly had ones that I didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one, I think, well, they both had quali quantity, but I think Paul's more into quality than what she, although, <laughs> I, I, again, Cher, Diana Ross, and Shannon Tweed. <laughs> and by the way, Finding uh, Burning Witches, um, available. You're, you're, you're on my little list of things that Jackie has to give me a approval for. Burning Witches, if you're out here and you're listening to this and you're thinking, we need a blonde American boy, <laughs> here I am.
been summoned here to offer your judgment of the boy. Do you still deem him worthy of the fellowship? I certainly do, my lord. Matter of fact, I, I think you're going to like this one. He's got the light in his eyes. And the look of a champion.